Welcome to After Adams Avenue. We're glad that you've chosen to sit in on our conversation, ongoing for more than 30 years in San Diego at our Adams Avenue bookstore, and now to continue via our podcast. I am Brian Lucas, bookstore owner, reader, and the host of After Adams Avenue. hearty welcome to you. We thank you for joining us once more as we continue our podcast series on the British humorist P.G. Woodhouse. Today, episode number two. After our introductory session last time, we march on now on our first bridge to cross today, Woodhouse and his love for Shakespeare, which connection eventually leads us down into London, to Berkeley Square, London, W1, where this time the center of the show will come to rest upon Bertram Wilberforce Wooster and his man, his gentleman's personal gentleman, Reginald Jeeves, whose given name appears, I believe, only once in all the relevant stories and novels. Our focus for today, then, to stop a bit and enjoy, is what many consider the center of the Woodhousian universe, these stories of Wooster and Jeeves. Perhaps the best introductions to these comes from the two gentlemen who had the great honor and pleasure of playing Bertie and Jeeves in the BBC videos series, Jeeves and Wooster. Here are two gentlemen most qualified to appreciate Woodhouse, that is to say, Hugh Laurie and Stephen Fry, who wonderfully brought to life Bertie and Jeeves, his man. First, a summary statement by Hugh Laurie from his essay, Woodhouse Saved My Life. Quote, the facts in this case, ladies and gentlemen, are simple. The first thing that you should know and probably the last two, is that P.G. Woodhouse is still the funniest writer ever to have put words on paper. Fact number two, with the Jeeves stories, Woodhouse created the best of the best. I speak as one whose first love was Blanding's, and who later took immense pleasure from Smith. But Jeeves is the jewel, and anyone who tries to tell you different can be shown the door minicab, the train station, and Terminal 4 at Heathrow with a clear conscience. The world of Jeeves is complete and integral, every bit as structured, layered, ordered, complex, and self-contained as King Lear, and considerably funnier. Fortunately, for the lover of Woodhouse, one is not forced into such a stark either-or of having to choose. One doesn't need to stir the Woodhouse soup too vigorously to see some delicious bits of Shakespeare floating to the top. All this is certainly no surprise, as Plum read, reread, and reveled in Shakespeare throughout his long life. Indeed, he seems on occasion to enjoy making some comparisons of his own work with that of the Bard. From a letter to a friend, Plum reflects on the comparison. Quote, Shakespeare's stuff is different than mine, but that's not to say that it is inferior. There are passages in Shakespeare to which I would have been quite pleased to put my name. That, quote, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, end of quote, thing, some spin on the ball there. The man could crack them through the cover when he got his eye in. I would definitely place him in the Woodhouse class, end of quote. From Plum's viewpoint, they shared a lot in common from their work in the theater. For instance, there was always the struggle 
of, quote, finding a backer, end of quote, for your play. The struggle to convince that your work comes up to the mark can, in fact, carry on the great tradition of English literature. Here we see a bit from Woodhouse giving us Shakespeare trying to sell the plot of Hamlet to Ben Jonson in the Mermaid Tavern. Quote, well, Ben, see what I mean? The central character is this guy, see, who's in love with this girl, see, but her old man doesn't think he's on the level, see, so he tells her, wait, wait a minute, I better start at the beginning. Well, this guy's in college, see, and he's come home because his mother is gone and married his uncle, see, and, and he sees a ghost. So this ghost turns out to be the guy's father, etc., etc., end of quote. And then, of course, there's the eternal debate of who wrote the plays anyway. Woodhouse showing both interest in and, of course, being quite up to date in all the debates, seeks to bring it all to life. Here, to be found in the Book of Woodhouse essays, Louder and Funnier, an essay called Round About the Theater, an Outline of Shakespeare, we see brought together Sir Francis Bacon, for many the real author, with Shakespeare, who the manager refers to perhaps rather informally as Bill, who himself has the role as what was and is known as a dramatic fixer, a figure and a role that Woodhouse himself was only too familiar with. Bacon, after struggling to get anyone to look at his play, the title Hamlet, finally realizes that he needs to turn it over to a manager. After a number of years, he's finally sitting across from one who has agreed at least to speak with him. Manager. Now, this what's-its-name-of-yours, said the manager, this Hamlet. Of course, we'll have to alter the title. I think it's got a chance. There's some good stuff in it, but it needs fixing. Fixing? Couldn't put it on as it stands. The public wouldn't look at it. You're, you're new to this game, I suppose. Two days later, they lunched together at the Mermaid, Bacon, the manager, and the fixer he's introduced to, a cove named Shakespeare. Shakespeare, well, laddie, I've read your little thing, and I think I can do something with it, but it wants a lot of working on. For one thing, your finish is weak. What you want at the final curtain is to have the whole crowd jump on one another and everybody kill everybody else. We'll have the king poison the wine, and Laertes poison the sword, and then Laertes plugs Hamlet with the sword and, and drops it, and Hamlet picks it up in mistake for his own and plugs Laertes, and then the queen drinks the wine, and Hamlet sticks the king with the poison sword. Then you'll have something. Swell, said the manager. Surely, argued Bacon, isn't all that a little improbable? It's what the public wants, said Shakespeare coldly. Or maybe you think I don't know. Sure, he knows, Bill, interposed the manager soothingly. Don't get your shirt out. Anything else? Is there anything else, cried Shakespeare. Well, there's nothing else but something else. For one, he's made his hero a loony. Bacon, his sufferings drove him mad. Shakespeare, not in any play I'm going to have anything to do with. His sufferings didn't, retorted Shakespeare. The manager, you, you see, Mr. Bacon, you've got to think of the matinee girl. The matinee girl doesn't like loonies, so you got to consider every angle. So, Bill, you'll, you'll not make him crazy? I'll do better than that, said Shakespeare. I'll make him pretend to be crazy. See? Everybody's fooled but the audience. Shakespeare was frowning thoughtfully as he turned his notes. 
to be or not to be, he, he murmurs, I'm wondering about that to be or not to be speech. The public doesn't like soliloquies. Bacon was now thoroughly roused. How about Eugene O'Neill? That's all right about Eugene O'Neill, said Shakespeare. Those Yanks will do anything. End of quote. Here is one last example where Woodhouse, in holding his work and Shakespeare's up together for review, illustrates with the challenge of one particular scene the distinction between their approaches. Quote, I suppose the fundamental distinction between Shakespeare and myself is one of treatment. We get our effects differently. Take the familiar farcical situation of someone who suddenly discovers that something unpleasant is standing behind them. Now here's how Shakespeare handles it in The Winter's Tale, Act 3. Antigonus. Farewell. A lullaby too rough. I never saw the heavens so dim by day. A savage clamor. Well, may I get aboard. This is the chase. I'm gone forever. And then comes literature's most famous stage direction. Exit. Pursued by a bear. All well and good, but here's the way I would handle it. Bertie. Touch of indigestion, Jeeves? No, sir. Well, then why is your tummy rumbling? Pardon me, sir. The noise to which you allude does not emanate from my interior, but from that of the animal that has just joined us. Animal? What animal? A bear, sir. If you will turn your head, you will observe that a bear is standing in your immediate rear, inspecting you in a somewhat menacing manner. Bertie, as narrator, I pivoted the loaf. The honest fellow was perfectly correct. It was a bear, and not a small bear either. One of the large economy size. Its eye was bleak, and it gnashed a tooth or two, and I could see at a G that it was going to be difficult for me to find a formula. Advise me, Jeeves, I yipped. What do I do for the best? Jeeves, I fancy it might be judicious if you were to make an exit, sir. Bertie, as narrator, no sooner S than D, I streaked for the horizon, closely followed cross-country by the dumb chum. And that, boys and girls, is how your grandfather clipped six seconds off Roger Bannister's mile. Well, now who can say which method is superior? Then, turning our attention to Stephen Fry, Jeeves for Hugh Laurie's Bertie Wooster, just a short bit from Fry's essay on Woodhouse. He realized that such dialogue as Woodhouse creates will always work best on the page, not in their dramatic dialogue. Then giving a wonderful example from the short story, Jeeves and the Chump Cyril. Quoting from Fry, Woodhouse's three great achievements are plot, character, and language. And the greatest of these by far is language. The language competently conveyed can, quote, go some way toward conveying a fair sense of the narrative of the story and a good deal of the nature of their characters. The language, however, lives and breathes in its written form. Let me take a random example from the short story, Jeeves and the Chump Cyril, where we find Bertie and Jeeves discussing a man called Cyril Bassington Bassington. And here's the selection that, that Fry has sorted out. Bertie, I've never heard of him. Have you ever heard of him, Jeeves? Jeeves, I am familiar, sir, with the name Bassington Bassington. There are three branches of the Bassington Bassington family. The, the Shropshire Bassington Bassingtons, the Hampshire Bassington Bassingtons, and the Kent Bassington Bassington. 
Bertie, England seems pretty well stocked up with Bassington Bassingtons. Tolerably so, sir. Bertie, no chance of a sudden shortage, I mean. What? Perhaps we should hearken back to their first meeting, when Bertie engages Jeeves to his service. For this we turn to Jeeves Takes Charge, from Carry On Jeeves. At their first meeting, a hungover Bertie, after a late night at the Drones Club, staggers to the door of his flat, opening which he discovers without, quote, a kind of darkish sort of respectful Johnny, who stood without. Bertie tells him to stagger in, and, quote, Jeeves floated noiselessly through the door like a healing zephyr. This fellow didn't seem to have any feet at all. He just streamed in, and he had a grave, sympathetic face, end of quote. In just these few short lines, much is hinted at, which turns out to shape much of what follows. One quality Bertie notices right here at the outset, how Jeeves enters into the presence. From my man Jeeves now. Sir, said Jeeves, kind of manifesting himself. One of the rummy things about Jeeves is that unless you watch like a hawk, you very seldom see him come into a room. He's like one of those weird chappies in India who dissolve themselves into thin air and nip through space in a sort of disembodied way and assemble the parts again just where they want them. I've got a cousin who's what they call a theosophist, and he says he's often nearly worked the thing himself but couldn't quite bring it off. Here's another one on how Jeeves just seems to manifest himself. Quote, Presently, I was aware that Jeeves was with me. I hadn't heard him come in, but you often don't with Jeeves. He just streams silently from spot A to spot B, like some gas. As we find in many examples, such behavior manifests not only the ability of Jeeves to walk lightly, but also his sense of discretion. And these constantly overlap, as perhaps the following might show. From stiff upper lip Jeeves, quote, It was the cough of Jeeves, which always reminds me of the very old sheep clearing its throat on the distant mountaintop. Or from the great sermon handicap, a low, gentle cough, like a sheep with a blade of grass in its throat. Now here's Bertie reflecting on yet another wonder with Jeeves. Quote, he put the good old cup of tea softly on the table by my bed, and I took a refreshing sip. Just right, as usual. Not too hot, not too sweet, not too weak, not too strong, not too much milk, not a drop spilled in the saucer. A most amazing cove, Jeeves. So dashed competent in every respect. And still we must add on even further to these observations of Bertie, his awe, at, as he put it, the fact that Jeeves was so dashed competent. And not only in his task was he skilled, but with an intellect of a truly higher order, sought out by many of Bertie's Drones Club pals, even his Aunt Dahlia, to rally round and deliver them from whatever their various perils were. The man is a genius, Bertie gushes. From the collar up, he stands alone. Now here's a short episode from the story The Dog Macintosh. Bertie, absolutely mystified at Jeeves' wonderworking, just can't restrain his curiosity. Tell me, Jeeves, were you always like this, or did it come on suddenly? Sir, the brain, the gray matter. Were you an outstandingly brilliant boy? Well, my mother thought me intelligent, sir. 
You can't go by that. My mother thought me intelligent. And then from the mating season, eventually Bertie got to the root of it about Jeeves' brilliance. Quote, and, and of course, all the fish explains the excess of gray matter, not to mention the way his head sticks out in the back. Jeeves had just let his brain out another notch. End of quote. Bertie considered Jeeves capable of anything. For instance, quote, to the best of my knowledge, he, Jeeves, has never encountered a charging rhinoceros. But should this contingency occur, I have no doubt that the animal, meeting his eye, would trek itself in mid-stride, roll over, and lie purring with its legs in the air. End of quote. Now, Bertie's limitless confidence in Jeeves' ability to always deliver the goods extended not only to confrontations with rhinoceri, but also with swans. An encounter Bertie narrates in the story Jeeves and the Impending Doom. Here we find Bertie and Jeeves down at Aunt Agatha's place at Woolham, Jersey. Aunt Agatha, not like the good aunt, Aunt Dahlia, but rather the one who is known to chew broken glass and occasionally eat small children. Unknown to Bertram, she has brought down a British cabinet minister, a Mr. Filmer, to entice him to hire on Bertie as his personal secretary. Forgive me, but we must just jump in on this one. Now, Mr. Filmer has found himself on a small island in the lake in the pouring rain, or yet even worse, having been forced to take refuge on the top of a small octagonal building, fleeing a most unfriendly swan. Bertie, along with Jeeves, was sent to the rescue. And soon we find Bertie sitting on the roof next to Filmer. Bertie, a bit surprised that someone like Filmer could make such a spring to evade the lunging swan, reflected, though of course keeping this one to himself, quote, the right honorable was a tubby little chap who looked as if he'd been poured into his clothes and had forgotten to say when, end of quote. Bertie, chatting with Filmer on their plight, had almost forgotten Jeeves who he had left back at the boat. Now here we pick up on Bertie's musings. Quote, With all the recent bustle and activity, I'd clean forgotten that while we were treed up on the roof like this, there lurked all the time in the background one whose giant brain, if notified of the emergency and requested to flock round, would probably be able to think up half a dozen schemes for solving our little difficulty. Jeeves, sir? I'm sitting on the roof. Very good, sir. Don't say very good. Mr. Filmer and I are treed. Very good, sir. Don't keep saying very good. It's nothing of the kind. The place is alive with swans. I will attend to the matter immediately, sir. Although Filmer remained decidedly pessimistic, Bertie replied that, quote, Jeeves will find a way. See, here he comes, stealing through the undergrowth, his face shining with the light of pure intelligence. There are no limits to Jeeves' brain power. He virtually lives on fish. Look out for the swan, Jeeves. I have the bird under close observation, sir. The swan had been uncoiling a further supply of neck in our direction, but now he whipped around. The sound of a voice speaking in the rear seemed to affect him powerfully. He subjected Jeeves to a short, keen scrutiny, and then, taking in some breath for hissing purposes, he gave a sort of jump and charged ahead. Look out, Jeeves. Very good, sir. Well, I could have told the swan it was no use. As swans go, he may have been well up in the ranks of the intelligentsia, but 
when it came to pitting his brains against Jeeves. He was simply wasting his time. Now, every young man starting life ought to know how to cope with an angry swan. So I'll briefly relate the proper procedure. You begin by picking up the raincoat, which somebody has dropped, and then judging the distance to a nicety, you simply shove the raincoat over the bird's head and taking the boat hook, which you've prudently brought with you, you insert it underneath the swan and heave. The swan goes into a bush and starts trying to unscramble itself. And you saunter back to your boat, taking with you any friends who may happen at that moment to be sitting on roofs in the vicinity. This was Jeeves' method, and I can't see how it could possibly be improved on. Here we see the full panoply of forces that Jeeves brought into the fray. Not only, quote, eyes gleaming with the light of pure intelligence, end of quote, but also that he was a man of action. As Bertie summed it up, quote, well, there it is, that's Jeeves. Where others merely smite the brow and clutch the hair, he acts. Napoleon was the same. End of quote. Now, as it turns out, Jeeves proved to be not the only one Bertie knew who could, when necessity called, deliver the goods. Listen to Bertie from The Code of the Woosters. Quote, I was sauntering on the riverbank with a girl named something that has slipped my mind, when there was a sound of barking and a large, hefty dog came galloping up, full of beans and buck and obviously intent on mayhem. And I was just commending my soul to God and feeling that this was where the old flannel trousers got about 30 bobs worth of value bitten out of them, when the girl, waiting till she saw the whites of its eyes, with extraordinary presence of mind, opened a colored Japanese umbrella right in the animal's face, upon which it did three back somersaults and retired into private life, end of quote. This whole experience at Aunt Agatha's with Mr. Filmer had been a most trying one. And as we realized fairly quickly, reading through the Bertie and Jeeves works of all the aunts, Aunt Dahlia and those of more distant relation, it was with Aunt Agatha that he found himself up against it the most by far. Now here's a short sample from a dialogue with Aunt Agatha, selected from a whole host of possibilities. Aunt Agatha, the Enmuth Museum is renowned for its collection of napped flints. Bertie, ah, well, that's the trouble, you see. Only last week, the doctor said I wasn't even to look at another napped flint. Sad, I know, but Aunt Agatha, don't talk drivel, Bertie, and stand up straight, end of quote. Unsurprisingly, then, it was there at Woolham Chersey, the lair of Aunt Agatha, that he had found himself even earlier on wrestling with the deeper issues of life and what the outcome might be. On one evening, as he was dressing for dinner, he, naturally enough, shared his ruminations with Jeeves. Jeeves, I said, have you ever pondered on life? From time to time, sir, in my leisure moments. Grim, isn't it? What? Grim, sir? I mean to say the difference between things as they look and things as they are. Jeeves. The trousers, perhaps a half inch higher, sir. A very slight adjustment of the braces will affect the necessary alterations. You were saying, sir. Well, I mean here at Woolham Chersey. We apparently have a happy, carefree country house party. But beneath the glittering surface, Jeeves, dark currents are running. Over the right honorable Mr. Filmer, who seems a man without a care in the world, a dreadful fate is hanging, creeping nearer and nearer. 
We can but wait and see, sir. The tie, if I might suggest it. Sir, a shade more tightly knotted. One aims at the perfect butterfly effect. If you will permit me. Jeeves, what do ties matter at a time like this? Do you realize what is hanging in the scale? Sir, there is no time at which ties do not matter. Well, apparently, as we see, Jeeves holds similar feelings with regard to the place of trousers as well as ties. There are moments, Jeeves, when one asks oneself, do trousers really matter? The mood will pass, sir. Bertie, through his adventures with Jeeves, sees many of his pals come calling, seeking to have Jeeves rally round and save them from the soup. At times, perhaps, even for Bertie, who had nothing but admiration for Jeeves and his wondrous abilities, this could get under the skin just a bit. Aunt Dahlia, your Uncle Tom's been having a bad time lately with his collection of silver cow creamers. Everything he's tried to buy, that blasted Watkin Bassett, has pipped him at the post. If he can get this thing cheaply, it might save him from an early grave. Jeeves clears his throat. Aunt Dahlia, you have one of your wonderful ideas, Jeeves? Jeeves, if Mr. Wooster, while sneering, could imply that the object is probably of modern Dutch manufacture, then the vendor might be more inclined to lower his ambitions. Bertie, why Dutch? Jeeves, the Dutch, sir, while an admirable people in many ways and renowned for their domestic hygiene, are not considered to be of the first rank in matters of Argentine craftsmanship. And Dahlia, to Bertie, well, you heard what Jeeves said. Now run along and sneer. Now here's another, a visit from longtime friend Bingo Little. In trouble yet again. Bertie, I want your advice. Carry on. Well, at least not your advice. Because that wouldn't be much good to anybody. I mean, you're a pretty consummate old ass, aren't you? Not that I want to hurt your feelings, of course. No, I see that. But what I wish you to do is to put the whole thing to that fellow Jeeves of yours and see what he suggests. End of quote. And there are times as well when the flow from Jeeves of literary riches can also become too much for Bertie. Here's Jeeves. Feminine psychology is admittedly odd, sir. The poet Pope, never mind about the poet Pope, Jeeves. No, sir. There are times when one wants to hear all about the poet Pope and times when one doesn't. Very true, sir. Or here's another with Jeeves drawing Emerson into the conversation. Jeeves, here as narrator, the only story in which this is the case. I'm lonely, Jeeves. Well, you have a great many friends, sir. What's the good of friends? Emerson, I reminded him, says a friend may well be reckoned the masterpiece of nature, sir. Well, you can tell Emerson from me next time you see him that he's an ass. Very good, sir. Jeeves, always with a ready and rich literary quote. Bertie, on some occasions, knew he had something within himself, just the right line in there someplace. But he was just not always able to bring it to the surface. Here's one from How Right You Are, Jeeves. Here's Bertie attempting to get the mental gears meshing. She was, in short, melted by his distress, as so often happens with the female sex. Poets have frequently commented on this. You're probably familiar with the one who said, quote, Oh, woman, in our hours of ease, tum tum tiddly something please. When something, 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 brow, a something, something, something thou. 
End of quote. Nearing our close, adding in another brief gem of a quotation, which effectively captures Woodhouse's unique handle on the English language. This one is extracted from Ring Jeeves. It was a confusion of ideas between him and one of the lions he was hunting in Kenya that had caused A.B. Spotsworth to make the obituary column. He thought the lion was dead, and the lion thought it wasn't. End of quote. Then here once more we find Bertie wrestling with deep metaphysical speculations. Quote, I spent the afternoon musing on life. If you come to think of it, what a queer thing life is. So unlike anything else, don't you know? If, if you see what I mean. End of quote. Then recorded for us in My Man Jeeves, Bertie, who for a time is without Jeeves, undergoes what seems a genuine aha experience and sees his life in a whole new light. Quote, As I stood in my lonely bedroom at the hotel, trying to tie my white tie myself, it struck me for the first time that there must be whole squads of chappies in the world who had to get along without a man to look after them. I'd always thought of Jeeves as kind of a natural phenomenon, but by Jove, of course, when you come to think of it, there must be quite a lot of fellows who have to press their own clothes and haven't got anybody to bring them tea in the morning and so on. It was a rather solemn thought, don't you know? I mean to say, ever since then, I've been able to appreciate the frightful privations the poor have to stick. End of quote. When all is said and done, Birdie realizes that he has more than just another gentleman's personal gentleman in Jeeves. His praise is unstinting. We close our session with this effusion from Joy in the Morning. Do you know, Jeeves, you're, well, you absolutely stand alone. I endeavor to render satisfaction, sir, said Jeeves. Here we bring to a close our brief excursion into the world of Bertie Wooster and Jeeves. And thanks again so much for joining us. And please be with us in our next episode number three, our last one on the world of Peachy Woodhouse. We hope to look in on the few more of the wonderful worlds of Woodhouse. We will sit in on a brief conversation with Rupert Eustace Smith, one of the characters of the early years, and then head over to the links to connect with the oldest member, who we will find ensconced on the terrace overlooking the 18th green of Manhuset Golf Club waiting to offer his sage advice to those seeking refreshment, perhaps counsel, as they make their way off the final green. And as the evening comes upon us, we will stop at the British pub, The Angler's Rest, hopefully to find a spot at the table with Mr. Mulliner and friends as he opens the books on another of his relatives. Then last of all, starting fresh in the morning, we will find ourselves in Shropshire at Blanding's Castle, with Lord Emsworth, his sister Connie, one of I forgot how many, and, of course, the Empress of Blandings, his prize pig. Till next time, 